Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. 3.14159265358979321. On this, the ninth episode of Strongly Connected Components, I talk to Professor Steven Strogatz from Cornell University. We talk about breadth versus depth what a friendship based on mathematics can be, and I even get Professor Strogatz to retell a Radiolab story. Here we go. I'm uh, here today at the Joint Mathematics Meeting in San Francisco, California with uh, Steve Strogatz from uh, Cornell University. It's uh, very nice talking to you. Thanks. Great to be here. <laughs> okay, uh, one thing that I've, that I've noticed looking through the work that you've done and hearing interviews and things with you is that you have a very broad uh, area of mathematics that you tend to deal with. What, what made you decide to uh, spread yourself out? It, in a math world where most of the time people focus very strongly into a single topic. Hmm. Yeah, I'd never really thought about deciding. That's just what I'm interested in. I mean, I, I've always liked looking at the world from a mathematical perspective. And uh, I mean, I also like math problems for their own sake. But, but the thing that really captivates me is a mathematical view of nature and especially everyday life, just little puzzles of, uh, you know, how our sleep rhythms work or um, the way crickets chirp in unison or, you know, these kind of things. Very, things that most people would say are not very mathematical. I, I like to find the hidden math in them. As, as reading through on your website, your research areas uh, write-up that you had done, and I, I believe that's the first time I had ever seen the words lasers and crickets used in the, <laughs> in the, in the same sentence. Yeah. Uh, uh, could you explain a little bit of uh, how you managed to put those in the same sentence? Yeah, well, it's... Um, you know, one of the great things about being a mathematician is that we do abstractions. We like to look at the essence of something. And so the essence of crickets, from my point of view, on that, in that sentence that you're talking about, is that crickets chirp periodically. You know, so you could think of them as a little oscillator, a rhythmic entity. And a laser um, is rhythmic in the same way in that you've got atoms pulsating in unison, emitting light of a certain frequency. And so... Lasers are oscillators, crickets are oscillators. At, at a certain level of abstraction, the math is similar for both. And uh, another, another one of the areas of, of mathematics that you have done, and it's, uh, it's a paper that I had actually read uh, recently, but before I knew that I was going to uh, have the ability to interview you, was a paper that you had done with Duncan Watts uh, a few years ago, I believe it was 98, uh-huh. uh, on uh, small world networks. Uh, what uh, Got, what got you and uh, Duncan Watts interested in studying the idea of a small world network? That's um, a pretty circuitous path that we took. He, so he was supposed to be doing a PhD about something. We tried a few different things. And, uh, you know, it's not always easy to find the right topic. So he tried one thing that didn't really pan out. Then he was doing something else. And at some point I thought, let's do a sure fire project. We got to get you to graduate because actually you had a different advisor before me. And so he'd already spent a year 
doing something else that didn't pan out. So he was really <laughs> starting to feel very itchy, like, let me finally do something. And so I thought this cricket problem, which was the, the question was, how, how is it that crickets can chirp in sync? Um, the point being that in Ithaca, we have a certain species of cricket, not just in Ithaca, but I mean, we happen to have the snowy tree cricket, which is like the grandmaster of chirping in unison. And they live in orchards in, in Ithaca. So we thought we could collect them. And with the help of a bio um, acoustics expert that I happen to know, he could make measurements on them. We could make a mathematical oh, okay. model. You know, and, and the point was that we were hoping that by studying an individual cricket, we could sort of figure out rules that govern how that cricket responds to hearing the chirp of another. How would it adjust its rhythm if it hears the chirp of another cricket? And then by studying all the individuals and their rules, if you put them all together, maybe that predicts the group, you know, or what, what the biologists call a chorus of crickets. Okay, so anyway, we're out there collecting crickets in the orchards, and Duncan got to thinking about which cricket can hear which other cricket. Like, can they all hear each other? Do they only hear the ones right next to them? Does it matter? And so this was the kind of thing that got him thinking about connectivity and different patterns of um, interactions in groups. And so from there, it was a kind of a short step, but a creative step to think, um, you know, how do dynamical systems change their behavior depending on how they're connected? And from there, he started. Well, at that point, he said that for some reason, and I don't know why, he thought of something his dad had said to him. <laughs> that do you know that you're only six handshakes from any person on earth? And um, so Duncan put those two together and thought there's, there's something here that there, maybe we should think about how dynamical systems would behave if they were connected in this six degrees of separation way. I do find that often the research that you do uh, is affected by the students that yes. you have. Yes, I like, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead with your question. Oh, was oh your no, no, question? that, that, that essentially what, and, and uh, so a lot of times it's the students who bring you the ideas and then you help guide them or? Yeah, it's a style, actually kind of started with Duncan, more, uh, that is, um, earlier in my career I used to have an agenda, that is I would uh, have problems I thought were good to work on and then I would suggest them and the student would pick something that was sort of interesting to him or her. But um, like I say, when I tried that with Duncan with two or three problems, they weren't really catching or working yeah. for him. But um, once he found this question that he was interested in, that I also was interested in after we started to think about it, I found that he had tremendous passion because he had thought of this question. And um, since then, I've realized that if the student thinks of the question, they have a real emotional investment in it. I mean, there's something they're curious about and they want yeah. to work on it. Now, the big, there's a lot of downside to this approach, which is that I don't know anything about that problem. I mean, I'm a total <laughs> beginner, and so I'm not really an all-knowing advisor who can give sage advice. And, um, but, I, you know, I mean, it's an interesting trade-off. The, the good thing is we're then made equal. We're partners, and um, I have experience, so we're not totally equal. But, but in a way, we're partners and we can now really explore, which is the honest truth of what real research is about, rather than this kind of artificial thing where the advisor you know, is like a bird who pre-chews the food and then spits it down the yeah. throat of the baby bird um, and asks it to digest it. it that's fake. So <laughs> it's like at some point, you have to come to grips with what is real research. You have to think of your own question and solve your own question. And so I figure, let's try it 
when they're students. And it doesn't always work. I mean, I'd say it often doesn't work. But the point is that eventually something happens. They do, you know, maybe they don't get the result they want or the question isn't as interesting as they initially thought. But they have a total sense of ownership. It is their question. Uh, you were, uh, in the beginning, you said something about liking to see uh, mathematics in nature and being able to, to view it in that way. And, and if I remember correctly from uh, something else I've, I've heard that uh, heard you do before, this specifically on the uh, fantastic show Radio Lab, uh, the story of how you initially became interested in mathematics has something to do with a pendulum and a parabola and a water fountain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so, and some people may have heard this, but I was just wondering if you could uh, just retell a little bit of it as, as how those things tie together and how it, it really got you interested in uh -huh. doing what we do. Well, sure. Uh, yeah, it's true. It was a pivotal moment in my life, a kind of epiphany. So I was taking a freshman year high school science class, Science 1, and the second experiment Actually, the first experiment was very boring. The first experiment was measure the length of the hallway. Oh, <laughs> that, yeah. You, know, you can imagine. So we were down on our knees with yardsticks, and, you know, there was no point to it except <laughs> to learn about error bars and how errors propagate, oh. and it was really uninteresting. So I, I came away from that thinking, you know, I'm not going to like this class. But the, the second um, experiment was about a pendulum, and the teacher gave us each stopwatches and our own little pendulum, which was unusual in that it was a pendulum that was retractable, so you could make it longer or shorter in uh, discrete clicks. And then with the stopwatch, we were supposed to time how long it takes for the pendulum to make 10 swings back and forth, then make it longer, 10 more swings, how long does it take for 10 swings, and so on. And so um, it was meant to be an exercise, really, I think, in the use of graph paper. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, that is, there's an independent variable how long the the pendulum is, and a dependent variable, what's its period for 10 swings, and you're going to plot a series of dots on your graph paper, and that's what you're supposed to get out of this. But um, as I started to do that, uh, around the fourth or fifth dot, I could see a pattern was emerging, which was that the dots were falling on a certain curve, and it was not a straight line, it was a curve. It had an arc that I looked, you know, I could, I was able to recognized because I had seen it in algebra class and it looked like a parabola. So um, this to me was a very disturbing and I would say almost frightening <laughs> thing because there was, I, I don't know what it was, but I suddenly felt like this is what people are talking about when they say there's a law, then um, there are laws of nature. That how could this pendulum, which is just a, a weight hanging on this, you know, this, not a string, but hanging off this uh, arm of the pendulum. How does this thing know to make a parabola? It's like, how does the pendulum know algebra? Which was really uncanny. I mean, it was a spooky, just like a creepy thought. Yeah. That there's a hidden world, that, it's not exactly a ghost, but I mean, there's some kind of hidden forces that are ruling the pendulum and presumably lots of other things too, and you can't see them unless you know some math. So that was... Um, for me, a very, like, a, a kind of a religious experience, almost, that I felt like I was being let into some secret place, and I just wanted to, after that, keep going back to that secret place. And uh, do you feel that 
th this way of coming to math, because all mathematicians come to math in a, in a different and unique way. I and mean, everyone comes to every experience uniquely. Do you feel that this way of seeing it in nature first and then realizing it has really affected the type of mathematics you have, you have chosen to do, the, the applied side, instead of, you know, say, something like set theory? Uh-huh. I don't know. Because, um, you know, the way you asked the question, it suggests that I had this experience and then that made me become applied. Well, no, it, that's... You don't mean it like that? No, no, I don't, I don't mean it like that. I'm just saying, uh, if, if you would have had the experience in a slightly different way, could that possibly have affected uh, the way that you see mathematics? I, well, because I, maybe, yes. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to be argumentative. I, it oh, could, no, that's it, fine. <laughs> it could be that I... Um, was like naturally tuned to like this kind of thing, and that's yeah. why that experiment meant something to oh, me. Oh, that's yeah, that yeah. Very, but on the other hand, I did. Very true. There was a time in a in a pre-calculus class where the teacher happened to mention something. This was another very important experience that I did not ever talk about in, on radio lab <laughs> or anywhere. Uh, actually, I may have talked about it at one other place, but. Um, the teacher was in the middle of talking about inverse functions or something that you would do in pre-calculus, but then somehow, I don't remember why, he happened to mention a, a geometry problem about a triangle, and it sounded like every other geometry problem about triangles. Yeah. This one was, um, if two angle bisectors of a triangle have the same length, then it has to be an isosceles triangle. And so it sounds like things you would have heard in geometry class and proved, but, he, but then the teacher said that um, he actually had never seen anyone prove this. And he himself did not know how to prove it. So this really caught my attention. This was a couple of years after the pendulum. Actually, I guess it was the next year. And uh, I remember thinking, whoa, this is really strange. A teacher says he doesn't know how to do this problem. I never heard any teacher say that about any problem before. Yeah. And I thought, what the, you know, first of all, it doesn't sound that hard. And secondly, he doesn't know how, and he's never seen anyone do it. So I started thinking about this problem with the uh, angle bisectors, and it was very hard, and I couldn't get it. And then I kept thinking about it. Like every day I would think about it or try something that didn't work. And little by little, I was actually doing research, although I didn't know at the time that this is what it is to do math, is to really work hard on something and be stuck and not give up. And I think I probably spent like a half a year thinking about it <laughs> and eventually got an argument that I thought was a proof and showed it to the teacher and he checked it line by line and he you know said it's approved congratulations and it was that was a very exciting you know kind of a turning point too so you could say um well so i should have become a pure mathematician oh, well, i mean yeah. I, I had the experience of yeah. struggling with a good pure math problem so yeah it very well could be uh, could have gone that way too it's just it's just what you like to do which is i don't see them so important. different actually oh i mean to me it's about math um it's about reasoning, about patterns, and you know, logic, and not giving up, and looking for connections. Well, it is refreshing to hear someone say that they're actually similar. A lot of I, I times, don't see, yeah, I don't see so much difference. Yeah, the uh, real difference is between us and the rest of the world. <laughs> I mean, pure math and applied math are pretty close in spirit compared to people who don't get math at all. True. You have been listening to Strongly Connected Components, Episode 9, with Stephen Strogatz from Cornell University. We will soon get back to the episode, but first a couple of words about AcmeScience.com, the site that is the host of Strongly Connected Components, as well 
as the podcast about the lighter side of mathematics, combinations, and permutations. We also have a blog over at acmescience.com where every once in a while I or a couple of other people may put up an interesting story about science that we think that those of you who listen to our shows would enjoy. We also have the forum, which is still looking for a bunch of new members to join in on the fun, and that is acmescience.com slash forum. And if you want to email me with some feedback about the show, that is samuel at acmescience.com. Now, back to the interview. Now, now, you spent some time, I'm not entirely sure when, but I believe it was, it was at least rather recently, uh, writing for the Opinionator blog on the New York Times yes. website. Uh, how did you feel, because you've, you've, uh, you've written a textbook, the Nonlinear Dynamics and Chaos textbook, you've written Sync and the one that's just coming up, which I'm going to ask you a question on in, in, uh-huh. in just a little bit. <laughs> uh, and how did you, what sort of experience, how was it uh, slightly, how was it different and how was it similar just in general, how was the experience writing for not not only say a math blog, which a lot of mathematicians do now, but writing for a math blog that's going to have a very large readership, like something that's on the New York Times website mm. can bring. <laughs> like, did you did you have to write it differently than the way you had written, say, Sync? Or They're all they all feel a little different. Um, the easiest was to write a textbook because that I had seen many textbooks in my own life. I knew which things I liked or didn't like. So that felt very comfortable. Plus, I had given all those lectures before and sort of knew what worked or didn't work. Sync was really hard because I didn't know who the reader was. I couldn't visualize, you know, who is the reader of pop science exactly. I don't know. Um, But, yeah, the opinionator, I had no idea who was going to read those. Yeah. And um, I tried at some point to not think about it too much. (laughs) <laughs> because it's very inhibiting to worry, you know. If, I mean, if I'm imagining writing for a fellow mathematician, it's too trivial. And if I'm writing for my my mother-in-law, she's not going to understand it no matter what I write. You know, sorry about that, Grandma, if you're listening. <laughs> so I don't know. I Sometimes I find it helpful. To, there, I have one friend who is very curious about science, but who doesn't know any math. And I often think I'm writing to him. And... Um, so if I visualize writing to him, it usually gives a good voice to the piece because it's friendly. I like this guy. I yeah. want him to understand. I know that he doesn't know certain basic things, so those are the things I'm going to have to explain. But I know he's very smart, so I try not to insult the reader by explaining too much. Or, you know. So, But then again, it may be that there's only one reader who likes it. <laughs> and maybe not even. You know, I don't know. It's very hard to think too much about the reader. I haven't figured out how to do that. Oh, uh, one of those opinionary pieces was about trying to define a certain mathematics to uh, love and, yes. and friendship. <laughs> I, Not to be taken too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the the approach uh, used in it was uh, it was it was it was quite intuitive, at least to a to, you know someone who studies some math. Uh, do you just explain a little bit of of how you were were suggesting that people possibly could approach this? Sure. Well, so the picture is, um, actually, it's not, I mean, something that occurred to me when I had my first relationship as a college student, I I mean, really, it was my first, I want to say my first girlfriend, except she (laughs) I wasn't even that much. I mean, maybe in my own mind. But um, there was a girl I liked, and it occurred to me that the more I showed her that I liked her, the more she started to recoil and, um, you know, back away. 
And this was puzzling, although I, now that I'm older, I understand that. But at the time, it seemed very mysterious. And at least I had the sense to kind of slow myself down or stop once I was, you know, I could take a hint. But then she would get more interested <laughs> and start approaching me more. So this seemed really interesting to think about because it seemed extremely mechanical. Like, um, that her rate of change of feelings for me, that is, does she start liking me more or less, depends on how much love I'm showing her or not. And, you know, conversely, I had a certain way of responding to her depending on what she was showing, you know, except that we were different. So the more she liked me, the more I started liking her, whereas the more I liked her, the more she wanted to back off and run away. And so um, it seemed like these were things that could be uh, quantified in simple differential equations, which are, after all, equations that say how the, the rate of change of some variable, in this case, my love for her or hers for me, depends on the current states of those variables. And so... I did it just more as a joke for myself to see, you know, can this explain anything that's happening? And the equations I just kind of said verbally do predict cycles of ups and downs for both of us, not in phase. And we were seeing things sort of like that. But, um, you know, you can certainly complicate them more and make them a little more psychologically realistic. But it may, mainly it was meant as a diversion. And it, if, yes. uh, it did not really help me win the heart of this particular girl. Maybe that's pretty obvious that that wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, but we can hope. Yeah, right. <laughs> we can all hope. Now, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, we're at the joint math meetings. And uh, one of the reasons that you're here is to give a presentation uh, about your new book, which is The Calculus of Friendship, uh, which sadly I have not had the chance to read yet. I did just recently pick it up, but I, I, I picked it up this morning. To, okay, to okay. Be, to be fair, I, I've, not, I've not had a chance. <laughs> no apology needed. Not had a chance You're not the to only one who hasn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but this, I believe, is, is the story of you and your, was it your high school uh, math this teacher? Is, this is another high school teacher, not the one with the triangle, but a different one. And uh, you, you kept in touch throughout for, for a long period, and this is about your correspondence and the friendship that you ended up cultivating yep. with them, correct? Yep, it's a, right. It's a story of um, about now 35 years of letters between me and, and Mr. Joffrey, who was my junior year calculus teacher, and, uh, you know, was initially just letters because I wanted to stay in touch with him when I went off to college. More like to just show him what math I was learning and things that I thought he would find interesting. He knew up to calculus very well, but really not much after that, yeah. essentially nothing after that. And he was very open about that and um, very humble person. But he had this funny, unusual quality that he would talk about his best, or not even his best, he would just talk about former students in, in ways that made them sound like gods of, of math. You know, he would talk about um, Jamie Williams, who found a formula for the, the nth term of the Fibonacci sequence, you know, and he made Jamie Williams sound like Gauss or Riemann, the way he would talk about him. And it was just very unusual and, and striking to hear a teacher admire his students so much and uh, make them sound legendary. So I think there may have been a part of me that felt like, you know, he really appreciates when his students do something, and maybe he's going to like it if I write to him about what I'm learning and possibly might even show it to some of his students this year, you know, current students. I don't know. But anyway, so we stayed in touch through these letters, but they were about math problems. Yeah. And um, it's kind of went like that for many, many years. In fact, I'd say it, is, it was always like that. The little bits of our personal life would creep in from time to time. 
because you know in 30 or 35 years real stuff happens yeah like people get old and there are tragedies that can happen as loved ones die or there's disappointments in your career or whatever and also great happy things happen but strangely we didn't talk about those very much at all in the letters so um my wife at one point now i'm married uh asked me you know look you must know so much about this man you've been writing to him all these years and i could only say no you know we just write about math problems and she, she just thought that was such a strange thing <laughs> so it started to occur to me after her teasing that there might be a story here about what's it like to have a mathematical friendship can a friendship be based on math alone a love of math and um but on the other hand why don't i know more about this teacher that i'm so close you'd think i'm close to and he's yeah. close to me how come we never talk about this other stuff and um so it's sort of an exploration of the evolution of a friendship and a relationship as told through a lot of letters about math problems <laughs> it's a pretty strange idea for a book and i don't know if it completely works but it was fun to write and the people who read it strangely are describing it as a tearjerker and i understand why i mean there were parts of it that made me cry as i was writing it so there are very poignant aspects to the story maybe it's about intimacy and how difficult it is to really know someone and you know how good it feels when you finally do open up to somebody that you care about yeah. so but meanwhile there's a lot of calculus in it and so i sometimes imagine this venn diagram where one circle is the people who want to read mushy emotional books about friendships and the other circle is people who want to look at calculus problems <laughs> and there's a very thin sliver or maybe empty set of intersection between those two but anyway i'm hoping it's not completely empty well i i very much doubt that it is given the reviews <laughs> that i've read of it so far and i want to thank you so much all right for, thanks uh, very much Samuel. doing this interview sure. i look forward to your talk okay tomorrow. thanks that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. I want to thank you all for listening and remind you that our theme music is the song Pie from Hard and Firm. And the interstitial and outro music is the song Shadows 192 from SP12. You can find out more about them over at opsounds.org. Once again, if you want to leave any feedback or just say hey, you can email me over at Samuel at Acme Science. This episode of Strongly Connected Components is, as it always is and always will be, a Creative Commons licensed podcast under an attribution share-alike license. So please do with this as you will, as long as you share it and, you know, give us credit for the audio. I want to thank all of you who listen, who tweet about this, who mention it in your blog, as well as the wonderful people over at the Mathematical Association of America who decide to put a link of our show up on their front page so way to go maa and once again thanks for listening i hope that you all have an absolutely wonderful week <laughs>